Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast, where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? It is officially December of 2021. Yeah. Gosh. (laughs) Ben's life just flashed before his eyes. I didn't mean to upset you. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. How are you today? I'm doing all right. We helped a friend move yesterday, and we are definitely over 30 because we we cannot do that anymore. (laughs) I am so sore. (laughs) How are you? You know, I'm not sore at all today, actually. Oh. Um, Which is nice. I thought I would be. It's probably because you had a very long, luxurious bath. There. Yeah, that might be part of it. Yeah, That's a good point. I didn't have like a shower until today, so. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to hear that you are having a rough day. Yeah. But we got a treat <laughs> for an episode today, so I hope that perks you up. Well, if this is a treat, what's the trick? That the, the we that we have to do the show, I guess. Oh, okay. Or, as in addition to just watching the movie. <laughs> sure. That there's like work involved. Well, what are we watching? Today, Sarah, we are watching Macabre from 1958, directed and produced by William Castle. Hmm. Been waiting for Bill Castle to come to our midst. So have I. Um, I'm very excited to be getting the first of his legendary horror films. And uh, we're going to be seeing a lot of him on the show in the episodes to come. Uh, He's a really interesting guy. So... This film is based on a book that I had never heard of by an author I had never heard of. So I'm hoping, Sarah, that you can enlighten us a bit about The Marble Forest. Yes. Um, So The Marble Forest is by an author named Theo Durant. Now, if you were to Google, dear listener, Theo Durant, you would come up with someone who was not an author, uh, whose name is Theodore Durant. He was known as the Demon of the Belfry. Sorry, what? This guy um, was born in 1871 and executed by hanging in 1898 in San Francisco for having murdered two young women. He was the assistant superintendent at Sunday school at the Emmanuel Baptist Church in San Francisco. And um, the two women that he was charged with murdering, he maintained his innocence, but he was charged with murdering. Uh, these two women were um, found in and around the church. So, so this guy was an 18-year-old Sunday school teacher who murdered a couple of girls in and around the church. Yeah. Okay, go the, on. <laughs> the novel, The Marble Forest, was published in 1951. So This seems un- incongruous. <laughs> So there's no relation between Theo Durant, the author of this novel, and the Theodore Durant from like the 1800s. Other than murder. Uh, other than the name. Okay. Because um, our author does not exist. Puzzling. <laughs> this novel was written by a group of 12 authors. That's a lot of authors. <laughs> 
So these authors are William A.P. White, Terry Adler, Eunice Mays Boyd, Florence Faulkner, Alan Himson, Carrie Lucas, Dana Lyon, Lenore Glenn Offord, Virginia Rath, Richard Shattuck, Darwin L. Talhet, and William Worley. And the reason that this group of 12 uh, came together in the night to write this novel is uh, it was part of a promotional and marketing stunt by the North Californian chapter of the Mystery Writers of America Association. Okay. (laughs) Now, was this like a writer's room situation where like they all contributed, like, you know, going around the table and coming up with ideas and then like rewriting and rewriting each other. And like, you know, it's like when you see like a a movie or a TV show where there's like a whole bunch of writers and you go, oh, this is a problem. (laughs) Or like, how did 12 writers write one mystery novel, I guess we can safely assume. So I'm unsure who came up with the general idea, but each writer wrote a chapter. Oh no, it's an exquisite corpse. (laughs) (laughs) The way this ties in with like it being a promotional stunt is the Mystery Writers of America Association, MWA, held a contest for readers to try to determine which author wrote which chapter. Oh, fun. The Marble Forest has a frame narrative following this doctor who, you know what, let me take a step back here. Okay. We are set in a small Californian mining town called Red Forks, and there's a town doctor. He's kind of new. His name is Dr. Rodney Barrett, and he's ruffled some feathers in the town one night he gets a call a mysterious call that his young daughter has been kidnapped and buried in the local cemetery alive so he has like five or six hours to find her and dig her out so as he goes into a graveyard which one could describe as a forest of marble Oh, there we go. He starts like digging out graves. As he's opening up these graves, uh, we hear kind of what the stories are of the person who is buried here. Hmm. Um, and that's each chapter. Hmm. So everything's pretty interrelated because it's a small town hmm. and it's kind of like, you know, you're unearthing the dirty laundry and the town secrets. Hmm. Um, and that's that's the novel. Dr. Barrett does find his daughter alive. Oh, good. You know, by the end. This led me to, like, dig into, like, what is this Mystery Writers of America Association? It was founded in 1945, so at the time of publishing this novel, it's, like, six years. Okay, like, it's very new, yeah. Yeah, Um, and the fact that, like, you know, this is, like, the Northern California chapter, so they would probably be aware of the historical Theodore Durant Uh, which is probably why they chose his name for the pseudonym. Mm -hmm. But the MWA is a professional organization for authors to share and discuss their writing. They do offer scholarships. They run um, annual awards that are called the Edgar Awards. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, It was started out in New York, but has chapters across the country, clearly. Right, that makes sense. Um, And their logo is Edgar Allan Poe. Right, okay, fair. And it's definitely just like mainly a professional organization and serves as a resource for writers to understand 
you know, legal matters, professional matters that pertain to them. And it's more than just like mystery writers who are a part of this organization um, can have written and published a novel, a short story, a screenplay, a stage play. Um, you also have publishers, librarians, editors, booksellers, etc. Um, and it's still going very strong today. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> Their main uh, goal is to champion crime writing as more than just some like dime novel yellow paper thing you wipe your butt with like ah, sure they they really want a higher regard for crime writing but that's the marble forest by theo durant i'm not going to go into each of these writers because you know there's 12 of them mm-hmm. and uh you know we only have a certain amount of time for a podcast yeah that's totally fair <laughs> but i will say that um it is a little bit of a um, a deep hole if people do want to go digging, because some of the author names that I listed, those were their names to the association, but even those are, in some cases, pen names. Right, sure. So it might be a little hard to find a bit more about each author, but if people are interested, go for it. Sure. Did you find anything saying like whether the novel was successful or whether like the contest was successful? Um, nothing about the contest. I would imagine it's pretty hard because I don't think they listed like, you know, here's all the people involved and just like drag and drop who you think sure. did which chapter. Right. From what I can tell, this novel's claim to fame is the fact that it was adapted by William Castle. Okay. They did have a second printing in 1953 under a different title, hmm. um, but its claim to fame is uh, with William Castle. Okay, interesting. So William Castle was born William Schloss Jr. in 1914 in New York City to Jewish-German parents. His mother died when he was nine years old, and his father, William Schloss, died the next year. So he he was an orphan by the time he was 11 when he went to live with his older sister. When he was 13... He saw Dracula on stage on Broadway with Bella Lugosi. This would have been like the 1927, like original American production. Oh my gosh. Um, And he later said that in that moment, he realized what he wanted to do for the rest of his life. Scare the pants off of audiences. (laughs) He watched the show basically continuously. Like he went to every performance eventually met Bella Lugosi. Oh, dang. And then Lugosi recommended him for the position of assistant stage manager. And at 15, he dropped out of high school to take that job. Wow. He worked on Broadway throughout his teen years. And then when Orson Welles left New York to go film Citizen Kane, Castle got his phone number (laughs) <laughs> and convinced him to lease his theater to him. How? So now Castle had Orson Welles's theater, if not any of the people who worked there, because uh, they all went to go to make Citizen Kane. So he now needed, you know, something to show at his theater. Uh, so he signed a German actress named Ellen Schwanica, but learned that according to the, like, protectionist 1940s theater guild regulations at the time german-born performers could only appear in plays that had been originally performed in germany 
You're kidding. This the idea behind this would have been to like promote American-born performers over German-born performers during a time when like Germany was sort of, you know, suspicious. Okay. Um, this is protectionism. It never yeah. makes sense, and it's always racist. Um, <laughs> I've just never heard of this. Yeah. So, uh... so this put Castle in a bit of a bind because uh, he'd already hired this actress. Uh, so Castle made up the play Das ist nicht für Kinder, uh, which means this is not for children. <laughs> and he spent a weekend translating it into English, meaning writing it. And then he began promoting it, uh, you know, as this new production of this famous German play that he had translated for the American stage to debut in America for the first time. Meanwhile, the Nazi party uh, sent an invitation to Schwanica, who had um, like fled Germany a couple of years prior, to travel to Munich to give a performance. And so Castle wrote a telegram on her behalf, turning them down. And then he sent a copy of that telegram to the newspapers and promoted his actress as the girl who said no to Hitler. (laughs) Then he vandalized the theater himself with swastika graffiti in order to make it seem like it had received protests from the American Nazis. That publicity stunt totally worked and the play was a huge success so he's always been a person of gimmicks yes so following that hit he was invited out to hollywood at age 26 by harry Cohn to work at columbia pictures as a feature film director wow 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 um He learned the film business quickly and became notable as one of the few people Harry Cohn actually liked, thanks to his extroverted, dynamic personality, but also his ability to make movies quickly and cheaply. I feel like it's the latter of those two (laughs) items on that list. By 1958, he had directed 39 B-movies for Columbia Pictures in a variety of genres, particularly Westerns, but also like mysteries and you know little crime dramas and and all that kind of like little cheap crap right um he had also done a few episodes of television by this time um he also served as the second unit director on orson wells's film the lady from shanghai for columbia in 1947 in 1955 diabolique was released in american theaters and castle saw that film and noted its phenomenal success and decided that he was going to do that. Go back to his roots of wanting to scare the pants off people. Yeah. So in July of 1957, he struck out on his own from Columbia and formed the production company Susina Associates with writer Rob White with the intention of making five films over the next 16 months the first of which would be macabre. <laughs> that's that's ambitious. Uh, very ambitious. So Rob White was born Rob White the <laughs> third 
1909 to Episcopalian missionaries in the Philippines, his dad, Rob White Jr., being an Episcopalian minister. So he spent much of his early life traveling the world with his missionary parents. Okay. He had no formal schooling before he attended uh, Episcopal High School in New York City. And from there, enrolled in the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis, um, which is like the Naval Academy for the Navy. Is that like a big deal? So you have to apply to the Academy and you need a recommendation from a congressman to get in. Oh, dang. Okay. Yeah. So it is a big deal. Yeah. It's not just like basic. Like this is like Starfleet Academy, but for the Navy, <laughs> right? Like you, you, you become an officer and it's all, it's really hard to get in and all that kind of stuff. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so he graduated from Annapolis as an ensign in 1931. He then worked briefly as a draftsman and construction engineer for DuPont. Um, but what he really wanted to do was be a writer. Uh, he had decided at age 13 that he was going to be a writer. So he would get home from DuPont at um, 8 p.m. And then he would write until 2 a.m. And then he would sleep until it was time to go to work in the morning for DuPont again. Wow. And this paid off because he sold his first story uh, for $100 in 1931 and soon became a prolific author of a variety of short stories for like various magazines like Esquire, The New Yorker, Boy's Life, like you name it. He wrote for it. Um, he wrote under women's pseudonyms to do romance short stories, like just everything to the point where um, he didn't need to work for anyone anymore um, because he wrote so prolifically and often that he like he just regarded it as a trade mm -hmm. like he was known as the writer's writer. Okay. Um, he soon began writing novels, uh, primarily adventure stories meant to be read by young people. In 1937, he married Rhody Mason, and they set sail to explore the Atlantic Ocean on his schooner for the next six months. Wow. One afternoon, they landed on a tiny eight-acre island, uh, uninhabited, called Marina K in the Caribbean, and they decided to purchase it for $60. From who? Uh, the British Crown, because they oh. were in the British Virgin Islands. Sure. They then built their own house themselves on the <laughs> island, and they lived an adventurous three years, uh, weathering hurricanes, aiding Jewish refugees, fighting off a Nazi ship, and hosting visits from his mother-in-law. <laughs> <What's, laughs> what is it about your experience with mother-in-laws that makes you list that alongside fighting off Nazis, Ben? White... You know my mother <laughs> listens to this podcast. <laughs> White detailed these three years in a series of three memoirs. Oh um, I believe it, they are called In the Privateer's Bay... Our Virgin Island, and Two on the Isles, I think. When World War II broke out, White was recalled to the Navy, uh, where he fought as a naval pilot in a variety of different postings, like on a bunch of different ships in the Pacific Theater. Um, he had experience on aircraft carriers, destroyers, and submarines. Um, and he rose to the rank of lieutenant commander, 
by the end of the war, um, which is like, that's a really fast, like instant to lieutenant commander in five years. And these experiences would provide the basis for a number of his later novels. However, he and his wife would lose their island paradise when it was sort of eminent domained away from them by the British crown during the war. Apparently, not so much because the crown felt they needed the land for some sort of wartime purpose, but because they had been unhappy with how White's memoirs had portrayed life in the British Virgin Islands. <laughs> After leaving the Caribbean, he and Rhodey continued to live in a variety of places all over the world, and they had three children. Of those children, Rob White IV became a well-known boat builder in Georgia and wrote a book on how to build boats. And daughter Bailey White became an NPR commentator and author of a number of her own books. In 1950, White was invited on an anthropological expedition to the Middle East by Harvard. And by 1956, he had authored 16 novels. Okay, so I feel like you need to tell me how the most interesting man in the world met William Castle. <laughs> yeah. Um, so White wanted to get into Hollywood and write for like movies and TV and Castle needed an author and they got together and they formed their own production company and Castle mortgaged his Hollywood home. Uh, him and his wife mortgaged it to come up with the film's $90,000 budget. Okay which is very small. Yeah, it's very, very small. Like, that's lower than Roger Corman. Yeah, it's, it's higher than, like, early Roger Corman, but definitely Roger Corman's making movies for a little bit more than that these days. Um, and then once they had that $90,000, they purchased the rights to the Marble Forest dirt cheap, as by 1957, no one really remembered that book or cared about it. Um, and then he pitched the film to producers Howard Koch and Aubrey Shank, who we know from producing The Black Sleep, Voodoo Island, and Pharaoh's Curse. They were so impressed by his pitch that they decided to lend Castle the use of their Bel Air Productions facilities and crew. Oh, dang. In exchange for a percentage. Okay. So then Castle filled the cast with character actors and other inexpensive faces such as William Prince, who was a frequent face on TV soap operas and the occasional feature film, but whose like big roles in his career would come in like the 1970s in movies like Network. Comic actor James Bacchus was the voice of Mr. Magoo, and he was also James Dean's father in Rebel Without a Cause, but his big role as the professor on Gilligan's Island was, you know, like 10 years in his future. Actress Christian White primarily worked on television, and actress Jacqueline Scott was making her film debut in Macabre. Um, she also met her husband on set. He was the stills photographer, and they remained married until their deaths in 2020. English actor Philip Tong had been performing on stage since he was five years old in 1902, um, but had only really started appearing in film in the 1950s, and he would pass away a year after Macabre's release. 47-year-old actress Ellen Corby would gain greater fame in the 1970s and 80s as the grandmother on The Waltons. The film's score is by that infamous originator of exotica music, Les Baxter, whose scores we've heard in The Black Sleep, Voodoo Island, Pharaoh's Curse, and The Bride and the Beast. 
The film was shot between July 29th and August 12th, 1957. That's basically two weeks. And Castle shipped it around to distributors. Um, he immediately got an offer from Harry Cohn at Columbia and said no. And then... Well, he's trying to strike out on his own. Exactly. So I understand that even though I think that's a silly decision. Yeah, well, you know, that's a power move, telling your, your old boss no. Um, he also got an offer from Warner Brothers, but he felt they were lowballing him, so he also refused. Um, and then he told Allied Artists studio chief Steve Broidy that macabre had cost $250,000 to make. So Broidy made an offer to pick it up for distribution for $125,000, which meant that Castle was already in the black before the film ever opened. Yeah, that's... (laughs) All right. And then Castle took that extra money and used it to fund the film's promotional gimmick. Oh, for sure. That gimmick was a certificate for a $1,000 life insurance policy from Lloyd's of London to be given to each person admitted to the film to cover them in the event that they died of fright while watching the movie. (laughs) Did did anyone die, though? Oh, absolutely not. Okay. Um, But these were absolutely real and guaranteed by Lloyd's of London for the film's release. That's hilarious. And they made, like, a big deal of this, that, like, this is the movie so scary that, like... We had to ensure people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Castle used a method of promotion and release that he called barnstorming, where he followed the movie to each new market it opened in in order to promote it personally, appearing at premieres by emerging from a coffin. And he hired nurses to stand by in the lobbies of theaters in case people needed medical attention and hired hearses to park outside the theaters. Amazing. Macabre made $5 million. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And it cost... 90000 90000 Allied artists immediately ordered a follow-up film as well as a follow-up gimmick. Yes. They're like, Castle, do it again. Yeah. Macabre is available on DVD from the Warner Archive Collection and online to rent on YouTube or stream on Tubi, with the YouTube copy being the one I will recommend. Cool. Um, I'm sure that we will hear more about William Castle and Rob White uh, in future episodes, because this is definitely not the last time we'll be hearing from Castle. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm super excited. Hopefully... Folks, you're able to watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Macabre from 1958, directed by William Castle. See you on the other side, everybody. If you don't die of fright first. <laughs> <laughs> everyone and welcome back to scream scene we just finished watching macabre from 1958 directed by william castle sarah what did you think of this movie did it live up to your expectations i think it did it definitely rivals 
House of Wax in terms of wanting to lean into gimmicks. Mm. And I think it it works really well. What did you think? William Castle really said, hey, what if horror movies tried to scare you, though, didn't he? He really did. (laughs) How could he say something so controversial and yet so brave? (laughs) Yeah, this is a really good movie. It does have some good spooks and scares. I think um, I've often seen Castle's movies referred to as like campy, which which I think applies maybe more to some of the later ones uh, than this specific film. But certainly there's kind of a feeling that like Castle made like cheap B movies that like the gimmicks were kind of the most notable things about Mm. like that the movies themselves like aren't really that good. Mm -hmm. And I think that people who think that are maybe looking at stuff like macabre and comparing it to like Alfred Hitchcock thrillers or like hammer horror films or like later movies um, that they're more familiar with. And I think, you know, once again, I'm glad that the format of our show is as it is because if you want to know what to judge William Castle against, like you need to be watching all of these formulaic fucking terrible B movies, Z movies that like we're looking at in this time period, because like, to me, this was a huge breath of fresh air. Mm -hmm. Like, God, it was just so... You feel like we are trapped in a coffin of Z movies? Right, exactly. (laughs) It's It was so refreshing to have a story with, like, no monsters, no mad scientists, no supernatural elements. This is just a story about a small town of fucked up people that's like, hey, what if one of the characters on Peyton Place just became completely unhinged? Yeah. I haven't seen any castle movies besides this one yeah you've just been looking forward to getting to them yeah so i can't really speak to camp in future movies looking at macabre i would say that they whoever is describing this movie as camp is perhaps conflating camp with melodrama yeah which is a common mistake yeah this movie definitely has melodramatic elements to it and I don't know about comparing it to like Hitchcock or even Hammer Horror stuff. Honestly, this had a similar vibe to me as some Val Luton films. Mm. Um, I think probably because they're doing a lot with like no budget. Hmm. <laughs> but let me tell everyone what the story is about and then we can really get into the meat here. For sure. Really dig into the grave right, and and dig deep into the film. So Ben outlined the gimmick in Castle's marketing of you'll be insured for a thousand dollars if you get scared to death. So that's directly inspired by what happens in this movie. Mm -hmm. Spoilers. (laughs) They say at the end of the movie, don't tell anyone. So I just feel like, yeah, the they, movie is telling me not to, so I, I have to be clear. This is like the earliest use of like, like they actually use the words, 
you will spoil the movie for other people, yeah. right? Like they use the word spoil. So yes, we were we were explicitly told not to do what we are about to do, readers. <laughs> we're we're bad boys. When the film opens, we get an announcer saying that, you know, you are insured for the $1,000 for like the next hour and a bit. And if anyone near you gets too scared, like make sure to check on them, get medical personnel, etc. And as that announcer is, you know, speaking, we see this picture of a clock that is at a funeral parlor and it's like a neon flashing clock. It's quite extravagant, Um, but it really puts into your mind that like there is a sense of time Mm. in this movie. Yeah, that there's a time limit. That time is important here. So next we see that we're basically set in 1958 and there's a funeral parlor operated by a Mr. Quigley here in this small town. And he's reporting to the chief of police that a child's casket has been stolen. Now, police chief Jim Tylo is kind of like mocking Quigley, like, oh, I'm sure, like, you're just trying to get insurance money because you owe everyone money and kind of ribbing him a little bit. And it's kind of clear from that interaction that Jim sees himself as the law in the town like he's not going to report the casket being missing because he's like eh, quickly i think you're up to something yeah he, he doesn't take him seriously yeah we never see like any other police officers so like i think it's just jim yeah he's just the sheriff yeah in this small town so now as they're talking um they do mention that tonight at midnight is going to be a funeral for a Nancy Weatherby. The Weatherbys are like the richest family in town. And, you know, Mr. Weatherby's heart just hasn't been the same since Alice died. And now Nancy has died. And do you really think that uh, local doctor Rodney Barrett really did all he could to save Nancy? Uh, Next, we see that Dr. Barrett is pulling up to his office across the street. And so Jim goes over to kind of rubbing his face a little bit that like, hey, you should probably leave town. Alice died and now Nancy's dead and it's kind of your fault, dude. But it's clear that Rodney isn't going to be intimidated. So he goes into work and we see kind of the effect of no one in this small town trusting this doctor because he has no patience. Now, he does have a nurse named Polly, who kind of acts as his sidekick throughout the film. And she's like, yeah, you don't have any patience. Why don't we pick up your young daughter, who's like three years old, and we like treat her to like a dinner night out. It's clear that Polly has a bit of a crush on Rodney, um, though it's unclear how he feels about her. So they decide, okay, let's leave early and we'll go pick up his daughter, Marge, uh, for dinner. And they head home and um, Rodney's nanny, Miss Cushions, is there, but Marge isn't. Um, They can't seem to find Marge at all. Now, before Marge was dropped off home to be with Miss Cushions, she was at Rodney's girlfriend's house, Sylvia, earlier. Uh, So Rodney's like, okay, well, I'll go over to Sylvia's. Um, Maybe Marge went back there and we'll see where she is, leaving Polly and Miss Cushions back at the house. So he goes to Sylvia. Marge isn't there. While he's out, Polly gets a phone call. It's a mysterious cackling voice saying that Marge is with the dead 
and um, she is in a coffin and only has about four or five hours of air. Polly faints and um, Rodney makes it back to the house just as Polly awakes and is able to tell what she heard. Now, they go to leave the house to start searching the town, and they find Marge's teddy bear out on the porch. Um, It's covered in dirt from the graveyard. And so they go, okay, let's grab some shovels. Let's head to the graveyard. Clearly, she must be there. Um, It also makes it clear that someone's taunting and touring with them, because that teddy bear also wasn't there when Rodney got home. Before they leave, though, Rodney warns Miss Cushions not to tell anyone, including Marge's grandfather, Mr. Weatherby, because he has a heart condition. Um, So now if you're putting together the dots, Marge is the granddaughter of Mr. Weatherby. Mr. Weatherby's daughter, Nancy, just died, and they're having her funeral tonight. And his other daughter, Alice, who would be Marge's mom and Rodney's deceased wife, um, just to kind of lay the land for you here. Despite these warnings not to tell Mr. Weatherby, Miss Cushions goes and tells Mr. Weatherby. And every so often you see him clutching his heart like, ugh! Polly and Rodney search the graveyard, and they're not really finding anything. They head to where Nancy's grave is. It's all dug out and ready for the casket to be interred by at midnight and they get interrupted by the graveyard worker mr hommel now he's holding them at gunpoint uh and like saying like get out of this grave and then we see that he gets knocked out by some kind of club when rodney and polly get out of the grave they see that it was mr weatherby with his cane who knocked hommel out and we get our very first flashback in this film um, with Mr. Weatherby saying like, oh, first Alice, then Nancy, now Marge, how am I supposed to handle this? So this flashback goes to um, maybe like a few months ago. Um, it's kind of undetermined. And we see Nancy's come home from uh, kind of gallivanting across Europe and that she's a little bit of a wild child, even in spite of her being blind since birth. That isn't a twist. Uh, that's something I didn't mention earlier. The reason why she's getting buried at midnight is because she was born blind so she was brought into the world in darkness and now she'll leave in darkness that's kind of mr weatherby's rationale here also it's a horror movie so being interred at midnight is kind of more spooky um anyway so nancy is a wild child we see that she is kind of down to clown with uh anyone who comes around when she's first in town I don't mean to be rhyming. Um, When she first gets back into town, um, she gets pulled over by Chief Jim. It's clear they have some history. It also makes it clear that Jim was deafs in love with Alice. And now he's with like scooping around with Nancy and Nancy calls him on it. Um, But they definitely have sex in this 1958 movie. Off camera. Off camera. Next in this flashback, we see that Nancy goes to Rodney and they're talking around her needing an abortion. She's pregnant. Her only choice is to marry Jim. And she's like, no, I don't want to be married. I don't want to have a kid. I don't want to be a mother. I want to be me. And in some synopses that I saw of this movie, um, people said that her cause of death is possibly from a suicide 
Um, I feel the reading of the film is that it was a botched abortion because yeah. she's asking Rodney to help her and he declines um, because he, according to him, he's a doctor and, and can't choose one life over another. Yeah. So Rodney like really firmly puts her down and then like later he gets a phone call that we only hear his side of the conversation on. So it's like, what? What happened to Nancy? Oh my God, get her to a hospital right away. And like, that's kind of it. But yeah, I, I think it makes way more sense that like, she's trying to like do something in the bathroom sink and it goes wrong rather than like a suicide. I don't, that doesn't really read at all. Mm -hmm. We come back to the present. Rodney checks Hommel, the knocked out caretaker, and uh, he's dead. <laughs> so he gets Polly to take Mr. Weatherby home while he deals with the body and then Rodney calls Polly to say you know what did the person actually say did they say graveyard did they say Marge was buried no she's just with the dead okay let's go to the funeral home and see if maybe she's there Mr. Weatherby comes along because Nancy's casket is there and he's like if we have to look in there I'm the one who should be opening that casket in the funeral parlor they are searching and they think that they possibly hear Marge breathing. Um, it turns out it's just some machine, but Quigley interrupts the search party. Rodney kind of roughs him up a bit to get answers, and Quigley's like, I don't know anything. What is going on? Quigley is actually here to get things ready for Nancy's funeral, because we're getting that late into the night. Jim also arrives, because he's here for the funeral, um, and, uh, Sylvia also arrives here. So kind of pretty much everyone in town that we have met is in this little procession here. And, um, they all ask Nancy's casket out to the hearse. Um, as soon as they can, Rod and Polly get away to get back to the graveyard to search because time is ticking. They notice that there's some fresh dirt on top of Alice's grave. And um, they start to dig, you know, maybe Marge is buried here. And Polly starts to, like, I think the pressure's getting to her. And she starts to go, like, yeah, Rodney, like, everything started going wrong once you let Alice die. And Rodney's like, what do you mean? Like, I didn't let Alice die. And Polly's like, well, not in your actions, but in the way you treated her. And then we get a second flashback. We see that Alice is pregnant with Marge, and it's been a very tough pregnancy. We also see that Rodney has started perhaps a friendship or an affair with Sylvia. It's never made clear which it is. I think it's an affair, but, you know, the movie doesn't fade to black like it does with Nancy, so who knows? Certainly, if it isn't an affair yet, you get the definite feeling that Sylvia wants it to be an affair soon. Soon, definitely, especially because now they are like engaged yeah after pushing herself a little bit too hard alice goes into early labor and people including polly are trying to get a hold of rodney but he's nowhere to be found because he is at sylvia's they actually end up calling sylvia's house and she says no he's not here so yeah because from like her point of view she's just covering for his like tracks exactly yeah um, they end up calling Chief Jim to get Alice to the hospital. Marge is born, but Alice passes away. Now, Jim, who has been in love with Alice since like they were kids, um, is very broken up about this. We see that 
after being at Sylvia's, Rodney heads to his office and Jim meets him there and tells him that your wife is dead and you have a daughter and then beats Rodney up saying that, you know, there's going to be a lot more coming. We come back to the present and um, this fight between Polly and Rodney gets interrupted because Jim appears. He's like, yeah, because Nancy's funeral is over there. And he kind of asks, like, what are you guys doing here with shovels? What's going on? They don't really answer him. But then Polly notices that there is a crypt nearby. She goes, oh, maybe maybe she's in here. And they try to get in. Now, this crypt happens to be Jim's family crypt. Polly gets in because the door is unlocked. Um, apparently, the only key was with Hommel. Um, she goes in and they find the bloodied dead body of Hommel. So a good scare there. It's at this time that Rodney's like, it's, it's too late, Polly. Like, we've run out of time. Like, there's no way that there was enough air in that casket for Marge. So they head over to Nancy's funeral. Very, very sad. They lower the casket. They have the sermon. As they start taking dirt from the mound to put onto Nancy's grave, um, they find the child's casket buried under the dirt. And Rodney is like frantic trying to get to it and opens it up. And inside is a decomposing child. Mr. Weatherby sees this and suffers a heart attack um, after like this entire evening of like strain after strain. It's this that really pushes him over the edge. And things happen very quickly once they open the casket and they see the decomposing child because Weatherby has his heart attack and then we hear shots go off and a gun fall to the ground. Next thing we know, it's Quigley who has shot Rodney. Now Jim starts questioning him like what is going on? Like what the fuck is going on? Quigley says, um, he's the one who made me do it. There was no stolen casket. Rodney paid me to put the casket here to put a mannequin done up to look like Marge in the casket, all to cause Mr. Weatherby to have a heart attack. But I don't want any more of this. So he like throws the gun down. Now, Rodney is like shot in the belly. So it's like a slow, painful experience for him right now. And he's like, no, don't, don't move me. Like, let me go back to my office first. So they take him back to his office and Polly enters with him. And she's like, what, why did you do any of this? Rodney's like, I just wanted the inheritance money. Alice was out of the way. Nancy was out of the way. And Mr. Weatherby, I waited like three long years after Alice died for him to finally go. And all it took was five hours of this like wild goose chase of looking for Marge. And then he succumbs to his gunshots. Polly then kind of looks around, sees the uh, locked door in the office. She goes in and Marge is there just asleep, just hanging out like a, a three-year-old does. Uh, and that's the end. Um, of course, we do get the uh, ending announcer being like, and don't spoil this for other people. And and if you're still alive, you know, because <laughs> the insurance money. And then uh, we get some like oh, very yes. humorous end credits. Yeah, we get end credits here um, and they're animated uh, and they're quite fun. Yeah, it's it's sort of like the first time we've really had like a long extended end credit sequence. But it's worth pointing out that the movie doesn't really have opening credits. It just mm -hmm. says like, 
you know, William Castle and Rob White present Macabre, and then we're into the movie, right? Yeah. Take that, Christopher Nolan. (laughs) So the final twist ending is honestly totally bonkers, and (laughs) it's a little unbelievable, given all we've seen. It's one of those twist endings that, like, once you know it and you watch the movie again, or even just thinking back, you're like, that doesn't really make sense. Um, There's a few things that don't make sense about it, but, like, mostly I think it's that the psychologies don't seem to add up. Like it turns out that Rod's just been faking his like entire personality for years because it's all been to lead up to this extremely elaborate scheme to get the inheritance money from his rich father-in-law who has a heart condition because like, Oh, like no one will suspect it was murder because he died of fright. I mean, yes, but I can also see how one decision led to the other with him. Like, I imagine, you know, he's fresh out of medical school. Maybe that's when he meets Alice and he's like, oh, what the Weatherbees are like the richest people in this town. Like as we go through the town, every building has like the Weatherby post office. Right. Yeah. Um, there's a bench that says uh buy from weatherbees like they are like the richest people in town so he like is like okay i'm gonna marry in because i know that the dad has a heart condition so it will only be a matter of time and in the meanwhile i'll have a cushy life as like a rich son-in-law and then you know by inaction um maybe he gets the idea after alice dies that like by inaction with nancy that like one less person and then at that point he's like okay well then it really is just one more thing one more nail in the coffin for mr weatherby as it were well yeah but like so the thing is is that like we don't we don't get like a really good motivation for why rod needs the money it's just sort of like you just said he's like i wanted the inheritance money and like that's fine like money's good but like (laughs) the movie doesn't it's not like like quigley we find out that quigley um agreed to do all of this for rodney because rodney was going to pay off his debts and those debts were set up earlier in the movie and definitely like if you're ever watching a mystery and like a character early on is like i owe so many people so much money like write that down that's a clue um (laughs) But, like, we don't get anything like that for Rod. Like, there's nothing really establishing why he needs to go to all these lengths to get Weatherby's money, um, especially when it's all just a matter of time as well. And certainly, like, Rod's a good actor, given, like, how the search for Marge goes. Mm -hmm. I will say that the, the thing that knowing the ending does make a little bit clearer is why Rod is such an asshole in the flashbacks. Um, because like, there's a lot of weird things with both flashbacks with Alice, Rod's a doctor. So he's, you know, very insistent that his pregnant wife, not like excite herself too much, uh, which is an old fashioned bullshit concept, but like, it feels like he's extreme even for a 1950s doctor. Like yeah, it, 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 it seemed to imply that she had been in bed every day for nine months yes since conception yeah and that like she comes to his office and she's like rod like couldn't we fucking like go for a picnic in the park or something like she's not like hey rod i want to go fucking skydiving into the grand (laughs) canyon she's like i want to eat food outside and he's like no get the fuck back in bed alice 
I'm trying to have an affair with Sylvia. Like he's really <laughs> insistent about it. Um, and seems to be like really harsh to Alice. And then with Nancy, like, again, he's like really put his foot down. Like, no, I'm not helping. I'm you. not helping you because I'm a doctor. So I have no right to like choose one life over another. And that's, it's really weird to me a little bit because, um, doctors are supposed to do no harm and it's he doesn't raise like a religious objection he's just like no i'm not going to help you you have to marry jim yeah and like doesn't even offer to help with like like she asks well you could like you could tell me what to do you could tell me what i would need and he's like no i'm not helping you in any kind of capacity point me in a direction to like the nearest guy who's already had his license taken away who will agree to do this or something right and he's like no not at all and so i feel like if he's trying to get nancy killed that makes sense yeah but i you know so but i don't there's a lot of like little holes in this whole storyline um if he wanted, if the goal was to get Weatherby to die of fright, wouldn't it have made more sense to take Weatherby with him on all of the investigation? Ah, oh, but then it would be too obvious, Ben. Would it? Because <laughs> um, the other thing is that, like, this plan depends on Miss Cushions and Polly going against his wishes repeatedly. Because he's like, Miss Cushions, definitely whatever you do, don't tell Mr. Weatherby about this. Polly, whatever you do, don't bring Mr. Weatherby with you on the search. And they both do those things. And, like, I guess you can say that, like, oh, it's reverse psychology. But it's it reminds me of, like, if you really break down, you know, the Joker's plan in The Dark Knight or something. Like, it's bad to have plans that rely on people having opportunities to make choices that could derail your plan. Mm-hmm. And... Over the course of the movie, the one person who is with Rod through everything is Polly. And she's the one who gets the phone call that's like, the shadow knows where Marge is buried. (laughs) (laughs) And she's the one who like gets led into the crypt that has like Hummel strung up bleeding and gets scared. Like if the plan was to scare Polly, it makes sense. There's just like these little holes and things. But what I will say about the twist ending at least in my opinion, it's definitely not something you're going to guess on no. your own. I think the closest is like, yeah, Rodney could have done more, mm-hmm. but. But they're just playing him as being like this sympathetic guy who's had like a real hard knock life kind of thing, right? Yeah. I'm so used to these movies having such obvious endings that I was sure it was going to be Tylo, like the sheriff, yeah. because it's like. <laughs> Rodney's like well he also like the actor who plays Jim does play him like that yeah but I'm just so used to these movies being not as clever as they think they are yeah well I think that's the benefit of having clearly like a really good writer right yeah (laughs) not just like some like someone who has the talent and the experience to be able to just rip something off the typewriter in a weekend yeah not like one of these um this it's is my first time. Yeah, exactly. Did you think it was going to be the sheriff or who were you suspicious of? Um, I was pretty suspicious of the chief, but honestly, I thought, okay, so throughout the film, um, people start like going at each other's necks. Like mm-hmm. even Mr. Weatherby turns to Miss Cushions and is like, maybe you did this because 
once Rodney marries Sylvia, then you won't be needed to look after Marge and you've looked after the Weatherbees your whole life. It just got me thinking, like, what if this is a uh, Orient Express situation where everyone, everyone stabs it. him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Because everyone had, like, something. Maybe everyone had it out for the Weatherbees specifically, and yeah. then Rodney would have just been collateral damage. Because, like, I was thinking, like, you know, the Weatherbees are, like, the richest people in town. A small town that has, like, the richest family. Either everyone loves them or everyone hates them. Yeah, and they definitely do try to give you, like, little reasons why everyone dislikes everyone else um, yeah. in this town. My second place pick was Sylvia. Sure. Um, because... She doesn't really get enough screen time to be put as a red herring. Yeah, I was sort of thinking that's why it was going to be her. Sure. And, um, you know, she keeps going on about how, like, Polly is interfering in like her relationship with rod and that marge likes polly more than her and that like this is what's keeping rod like attached to this like town and they seem to be trying to like you know kill marge and scare polly off so like the, i thought it was going to be sylvia but mm. regardless um you definitely do not think it's going to turn out to have been rod the entire time yeah so i i enjoyed it and i think what was interesting with the way that this film is constructed is that it makes it a very female prominent film. Mm. So you have Nancy, Alice, Polly, um, even Sylvia to an extent. Um, Mrs. Cushions. Miss, yeah, Miss Cushions for sure. And I, I was really struck by how often Polly says lines that are like filler lines that normally a male character will say in a scene. Things like... You know, when they get to, like, part of the one grave, she's like, yeah, here, it's loose here. We should search here. Just, like, throw away lines like that that don't actually go to anyone. Those would be lines that would be said by, like, other people in Star Trek, but William Shatner would make the case that, no, the captain should be saying right. those things. So the thing is, is it's because Polly, structurally, even though it's clear that, like, she's into Rod and it's unclear who Rod has feelings for, Polly is structurally filling the role of sidekick instead of the role of love interest. Mm -hmm. And that's why she's getting all those lines. Like she's Velma here, right? Yeah, she's Robin. Yeah, exactly. Which was really cool. And I do think the movie has like a really interesting take on its female characters. Especially like talking about abortion. Yeah, I mean like what a character Nancy is. Yeah. Right? Super cool. Unapologetic for who she is. She knows what she wants and what she doesn't want. She's the only person in this town who seems to have like a spark of like life. joy. Yeah. A spark of life in her. Joie de vivre. And something really interesting to note about her death. The town. So the town blames Rod for Alice's death because he wasn't there. And he was like off drinking with Sylvia. And like that's that's cruel but fair. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, but the town also blames Rod for Nancy's death. And it's like, what's his, what's at fault there, right? Um, he refused to give her the abortion. Yeah. The line that everyone keeps saying is that a better doctor. Could have saved her, yeah. right? So why is it his fault that she's dead? Well, because if a doctor had done the procedure maybe she would have lived. Yeah. 
legal abortion, folks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also the idea of like, I'll force her into having to get a back alley abortion as a plot for murder. Right, exactly. Um, but yeah, I do think it's really interesting that like the conclusion you have to draw is that the town is angry at Rod for not giving her the abortion. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because yeah, of course, um, as I'm sure many of our listeners would know, but in case you don't like abortion was soups illegal in the United States at this time. Yeah. The, the, the town, like I made a joke about Peyton place earlier, but like, it really is that like small town where everyone's got secrets and people are having affairs and people are doing all kinds of things. And like the, I don't remember when the book of Peyton place came out, but the movie came out in 57. And this idea that like the small idyllic American town, like has all these nasty people living in it was like a fairly new concept. And this movie is just like not afraid to be grim Mm -hmm. or like dive into controversial subject matter. Like we have a kidnapped and possibly asphyxiating child We have extramarital affairs, extramarital sex, abortions, murders, so much death. Um, So much death. So much death. There's like some genuinely disturbing stuff in this movie, like the grisly fake corpse of Marge that Quigley made. Oh, it's so, it's so well done. And even when we saw it, I was like, but... Marge is just too, supposed to have like suffocated. Yeah, Why does she have a decaying skull? No, but it's like a whole step beyond the kinds of things we've seen up till now in horror movies. The fact that we get a shot inside the casket, mm-hmm. we don't just see people's reactions to it, I think is key here. Yeah. There's some really good jump scares here and there. Um, and there's just like buckets of atmosphere absolutely um the graveyard set is really really well done they have a fog machine going so when we look at the graves there's like mist kind of wallowing over them here's the thing so when homo gets hit Mm -hmm. you know you can see like there's a little bit of blood behind his ear um and rodney goes over and he's like you killed him jim uh that's that that (laughs) might be confusing you're Um, dead jim he's dead jim Jim is not Weatherby's name, actually. Yeah. So, like, the order of events is, like, he had to, like, hide the body or whatever once Polly and Weatherby left. So he gets the key from Hummel's pocket to get into Jim's family crypt Mm -hmm. and then hide the body there. When we see Hummel in that shot, he has blood down his face and off of his chin and, like, he's bloodied up more um, and he's definitely dead now. It, it kind of like allows you to. I think Rod killed Hummel. Absolutely. Like you, you try to fill the blanks there, even if the extra blood was just to make that moment more scary. Like it kind of puts another, again, nail in the coffin for mm-hmm. Rodney being a terrible person. Um, I think this is also a pretty good adaptation of the novel. Mm. Um, I don't know if the goose chase around town kind of thing is also in the novel but i know that it's like every chapter someone else wrote it so i guess i just kind of assumed that every chapter was like here's the story of how this person died in the cemetery Mm. but in even if that's the case of the novel i would still say that macabre is a pretty good adaptation because we get the airing of everyone's secrets and everyone's grievances and everyone's connected yeah it's all one story i think one of the most notable things of all for me in this movie that i noticed right away 
um, was the performances of the cast mm-hmm. uh, who do a really good job of performing as if, you know, insane, stressful, terrible things are actually happening to them. Like Holly has a great scream. Yeah. These people really do appear to be a collection of broken, selfish, hateful, tragic people. And this raises the level of emotion in the movie so much higher because movies are machines that create empathy. So if the characters really seem to be terrorized, like you feel that so much more. And I think that the thing about this cast, or maybe it's William Castle's direction or something, but these performers remembered that like when you're in a stressful, horrific situation, you don't go from like, oh, the scary thing pops out, you scream, and then kind of down to like normal again, and then another scary thing pops out and you scream, and then you're back to normal. Yeah, no, there's a real clear rising of tension in the characters as well as the movie itself. Yeah, like Polly is like losing it by the end here because she's been through so much, and you can see that. And I really, really liked that. Um, that was the thing that made me sit up and pay attention really early on. Mm-hmm. We already sort of mentioned this, I think, but the cinematography was really good. Um, Great use of like light, shadow, blocking, angles, rain. I do think that the, there is a weak performance in the cast. Oh. And I think it's really unfortunate that it is the most experienced actor in the cast who gives it. But I didn't really feel very convinced by Jode Weatherby uh, and the actor who plays him. Yeah, that's fair. He's a little one note. It's a little bit unfortunate because if there's anyone who's like fear we need to believe and who we really need to see like the cumulative effects of the night on, it's Mr. Weatherby. But the actor who plays him just kind of does this like very cliche, like, oh, my art kind of thing um every time like something mildly shocking happens and there isn't really like a lot of variation like it doesn't seem like he's getting closer to a heart attack as the night goes on it just sort of seems like he's been at the same closeness but like you know earlier things weren't high enough to like beat the uh the ac on his heart attack like listen this is why rodney had to go to extreme circumstances (laughs) He, he, this frustration you're feeling, Rodney's been feeling this for years. Right. Like, like there's been a few times where like Rodney has just like snuck up behind Mr. Weatherby and right. And just like grabbed his shoulders and be like, Hey dad. And like yelled in his (laughs) ear and yeah, nothing happened. Um, the last thing I want to say is that, um, this has great music. Mm. Uh, so I wasn't sure how it would go because I really ripped into Les Baxter in the previous episode with right. his score for Bride and the Beast. Yeah. Um, but no, he, he does a really good job here. It feels very cohesive. And I like that he implemented, for lack of a better word, leap motifs of the ticking of clocks mm. or like a metronome of something almost in a very much toned down way to the uh, interstellar soundtrack hmm. um that you know it's all working to build tension um and interstellar like it really is very prominent i think in in macabre it's it's there if you're you know if your ears hear it but it's not front of mind which i think is why it's so interesting that like the movie starts and ends on that neon clock right 
I was really surprised pleasantly and pleased that like the whole you'll die of fright thing from the promotional gimmick like is thematically connected to the film and like foreshadows the ending. Yeah, I really liked it. It made everything feel very like tight like everything is working in conjunction with each other yeah it's it's very like as a piece um it feels like beyond the promotional gimmick part of it that the sort of opening with the announcer being like hey if anyone dies of fright in the theater um i think possibly an ulterior motive to that could be that it is within the film itself a signal to the audience that says hey this is all in good fun. This is all a game. Mm -hmm. Like as much as, cause the more that the announcer or the advertising or anything insists like this movie's so scary, you're going to die. Like the more clear it is that like, that's not going to be the case. Right. And I think it is done this way because it's sort of, in my opinion, lets them sneak in some of this like really taboo stuff into the movie by making it so that you come in a little bit disarmed by saying like, this is going to be a little silly. Um, and then they can kind of sneak in this stuff. And it's the same as like the fun cartoon end credits. They send you out of the theater with a smile on your face. So you don't like think too much about how truly disturbing this movie's ending is like Polly picks up sweet sleeping Marge and carries her out of the office and the music swells and we get some goofy end credits. And it's like, right, right, right. But this three-year-old girl, like, everyone in her family is dead. And, like, arguably they're all dead, including her father, because of her father. And, like, she's not going to be told any of this until she's, like, 16 or something. And it's this, like, horrific family secret that comes out where Polly's like, yeah, I'm not actually your mother. And your father didn't actually go on an adventure to Rio de Janeiro. Here's what really happened, you know? Oh like, this, this girl's going to be fucked up. Uh, for the rest of her life. So I, I do think that like the the funny ending credits like serve this purpose of making you be like, oh, that was a good time and not really think about that too hard. Absolutely. Let's speed off to ranking. Okay. So where were you thinking, Sarah? I actually have a very narrow range. Okay. So this movie is full of gimmicks. Mm. And my mind immediately went to House of Wax mm. or other very gimmickful, gimmickful, gimmicky, gimmicky movie. House of Wax uh, is five years before this and is currently ranked at number 43. And while I think Macabre can have a lot of credit to its name for everything, including the gimmick being thematic and tied to what it's about whereas house of wax does not does not it it takes like a full five minute detour to have a ping pong into your face the spooks and scares in house of wax i think are more uh intense so i have house of wax as my ceiling and then looking down i kind of stopped around 46 with um i was a teenage werewolf because that one is also you know kicking off a trend if you want to call William Castle making movies a trend. Mm -hmm. um, and Macabre is much scarier. <laughs> and I guess like you could make the argument of like Teen Werewolf with its gimmick of teens is not as cohesive as Macabre with its gimmick of insurance money. Mm. So my range is 43 to 46. Okay. Um, I thought you'd might be, be down here. I'm a lot higher. 
Interesting. So William Castle was inspired to make this movie from the success he saw of Diabolique. So I looked for Diabolique, which is up at number 16. And that is a better movie than this. Because while they both are about someone scheming to kill someone else by scaring them to death, the plan in Le Diabolique makes more sense to me Mm -hmm. um, and is a lot scarier. So I think that Macabre is not as good. So my ceiling would be to put this at number 17 beneath Le Diabolique and above Frankenstein. For my floor, uh, I looked down and I was basically looking through these movies thinking like, what do I think Macabre is genuinely scarier than? And for me, one of the things that I really liked about Macabre, um, and again, this comes back to just like where in history it is, but I really liked that this was a movie about real things, that like these are all real people in a real world who are just so messed up that they're going to do these horrible things to one another. And um, that really gave it an edge for me. So I sort of was looking down the list comparing it to stuff like Frankenstein and Dracula and Night of the Demon and, you know, Fairman Maria. And I saw The Wolfman, which is a good, fine, spooky, atmospheric movie with like um, a neat little like allegory to it if you know where to look. But I think Macabre is like the more sort of powerful, impactful movie. So my range was 17 to 23. Uh, which means that we've got a gap between us of 23 to 43. Well, if we look at the like exact halfway point between our ranges, because it's just 20 movies, that's easy to figure out. Um, it's Curse of Frankenstein at 33, uh, above which is Night of the Hunter and below which is Mad Love. So what do you think of this movie when you compare them directly with like those? Do you want to go higher or lower? It's interesting to compare it to Hammer Horror's Curse of Frankenstein because that is reinvigorating gothic and like, you know, starting a new trend by looking to the past, Um, whereas Macabre feels a lot more fresh. Mm. I really like Curse of Frankenstein, but I think Macabre builds its tension a little better, Mm. maybe because it is, I think it's shorter. Yes, I Um, think so. So it, and also it's not having to adapt a novel that also has its feet in other places, as we've kind of talked about in um, other episodes and and stuff. I think most specifically in that last um, bonus audio for uh, where we talked about Gothic versus sci-fi horror on Patreon. So I would be willing to go above Curse of Frankenstein. And yeah, looking at these other movies that are between even Curse of Frankenstein and Your Floor... I kind of feel where where you're coming from. Looking where your range is, though, I think Night of the Demon um, accomplishes a lot more on a craft level mm. um, because it's doing a lot of special effects and it's being very inventive in that way. I, I'm honestly thinking, what if we replaced Murders in the Zoo? Yeah, like below Night of the Demon, above Murders in the Zoo. Yeah, because... Um... I don't really know how Murders in the Zoo is higher than Fairman Maria. Trauma. But um, <laughs> but the thing about Murders in the Zoo is we sometimes forget that like that movie's like 50% comic relief. 
Yeah. And there's no comic relief in Macabre. No. So yeah, I'm all right with that. Cool. Okay, so entering the list at the new number 21 is Macabre from 1958, directed by William Castle. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed, and you can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review. Tell a friend about the show, whether online or in real life, and that helps grow our audience. And if you have the financial means, we would love it if you would check out patreon.com slash podcast, where you can help support the show by contributing as little as a dollar every month but patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get access to regular bonus content. So that's patreon.com slash podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, it's from the makers of Man Without a Body, which was the movie about Nostradamus's head. Oh my God. It's called Woman Eater. <laughs> well, see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.